Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady. Uh, my co-host, Matt Scott, he's not with me today. I'm up in Bend, Oregon, beautiful part of the country. I've picked up an earth cruiser and I'm getting ready to head out into the Alvor Desert and the Steens Mountains for a few weeks of exploring. And being in Bend, Oregon, uh, gave me the opportunity to connect with a longtime friend and travel companion, Chris Van Dyke, who's going to be on the show with me today. Thank you for being on the show, Chris. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a double pleasure to get to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. And we enjoyed an amazing trip on motorcycles down in South America, but we're going to touch uh, the very tip of the iceberg of Chris's life and his experiences uh, in business and as a traveler. In business, Chris was the vice president of product development and marketing for Patagonia. He worked for nearly two decades with Nike, uh, both in their legal team and then as a product manager. And he helped found the Now Clothing brand, uh, which is a, a premium a line of uh, both urban and outdoor related performance clothing. He was a district attorney as well. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of there's a lot of great stories that that we're going to go through today. And he he has some incredible insights related to not only travel but also business. Uh, I was reminding Chris before we started the the recording that uh, there has been a few nuggets that he's given me of thoughts through the years that have stuck with me for for literally for years and made it made a huge difference in my business. So thank you, Chris, again, for, well, for being on the on ab- the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, I think it would be neat to first talk about the places that you've traveled. The sailing stories just sound fascinating. So tell tell us about where you sailed in the world with with Chris, your wife, and and where you where you traveled. Well, we we took off for three years on our own sailboat and sailed it to Alaska, uh, to, to Mexico. Spent several years in the Sea of Cortez, the coast of Mexico, and South America. And then we crewed on a boat that we became kind of regular crew members. We crewed on a uh, month-long passage from Tahiti to Hawaii. Then we crewed on a month-long passage down the coast of Peru from Portamont to Ushuaia. And then I did a five-week trip from Ushuaia to Antarctica and back. Oh. The, the culmination of my uh, hairball sailing experience. Uh, so, so you've nearly sailed the seven seas, it sounds like. Pretty much. And we've chartered all around the world. We've, we were rode out a hurricane in New Zealand on a charter boat and wow. sailed in Thailand, Australia, New Zealand, um, sailed some in the, in the Caribbean, uh, Mediterranean. So just almost everywhere. So, well, it, it, the timing of this conversation is around COVID and, and you want to talk about being able to socially distance yourself, being on a sailboat would allow you to do that in ways that would be pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. For a month at a time, pretty easily. Yeah, I was reading in the news uh, just a couple days ago about this guy who had been on out in the ocean for three months and he cruise, you know, he cruises into, into the port in New Zealand. Now he knew what was going on from some satellite communications, but they wanted to quarantine him when he showed up and he says, man, I've been quarantined for three months. So it was, <laughs> it was really, it's pretty interesting to see how yeah. isolated, I mean, we think we can get isolated overlanding, but you can really get in the middle of nowhere on a sailboat. You can't, I mean, you, you can be a month from land. Wow. And, and, you know, rescue is a whole different proposition out in the ocean. You can hope for freighters, but you know, sailors like to get out of the shipping lanes. They're the yeah. good places to sail. So it makes 
the chances of, of rescue if needed even even more hazardous and, and remote. And you know, it's it's interesting because the time at sea is not only psychologically interesting, yeah. being in this small space with infinite horizon in every direction, uh, but also physically, you're in yeah. constant motion. You're never still. Mm. And to step off a sailboat after being on it for a month or two, you get land sick. You can't, you get nauseous from being still. It's just a, you know, opposite reaction. Oh, that's fascinating. Physical as well as psychological. And tell me about the trip that you did to Antarctica. What kind of a boat was it and what you experience in that five or six weeks down to Antarctica? Yeah, it was, it was a, a boat that was called Flyer. Okay. One a Whitbread back in the seventies. And it was purchased and, and privately turned from a catch into a sloop and was doing sort of private high latitude sailing. And it's the boat uh, we, we crewed on from Tahiti to Hawaii, got to know the skipper and first mate, and they wanted to go to Antarctica. They hadn't done it before. So they kind of scooped up crew that they had spent a month or more with to be very selective because you're 12 people in a 60 foot boat for five weeks is uh, socially interesting. Put it that <laughs> I can way. imagine. The I dynamics can... are really important. Sure. It's, it's like bivying in a tent for three or four days. Imagine that for a month, five weeks. So I was invited on the trip. Uh, my wife, Christine, sailed down the coast of, of Chile in preparation. Then we outfitted the boat in Ushuaia and left Ushuaia, went past Cape Horn, went down onto the Antarctic Peninsula and sailed around down there until we were driven out by a, a really serious cyclone, 80 mile an hour winds, 40 foot seas. We kind of fought our way back to the to South America, but it was extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's, it's another planet. It's yeah, it genuinely is. Yeah. And I've not been to the peninsula of Antarctica and cause there's so much wildlife there. Were you able to, to interact with some of the wildlife oh, in, there? Intense. No, wow. just the whales and the seals and the penguins and you know, the penguins, they, they haven't seen people. So you get off the boat and land and they just sit in the middle of them. It's just, they don't care. Yeah. You know, the, the wolf seals are aggressive. You got to be careful with your inflatables with those things. And um, whales everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. And wow. The light it's light 24 hours a day, right? You can be a monkey with a camera and get good photographs. <laughs> That's so true. That's, that explains why I've gotten a few good photographs <laughs> in my life. Uh, good light. Um, what, when you, when you were doing all of this sailing and then you started to do more overland travel, uh, Give us some insights into what you learned as a sailor. What were some of those takeaways that really helped prepare you for overland travel? Oh, interesting question. Um, You know, when I first started doing offshore passages, I started by racing up the coast of Washington, did the Swiftshire race out and around uh, Swiftshire rocks. Um, I had a friend whose boat I crewed on um, that we did during several overnight passages. He had this story. He said, well, every boat has this, black box down in the bilge. And when you're offshore at night, that's when it happens. Sure. Uh, you can't see land. Everything's dark. It's storming. You're being thrown around. You're making withdrawals from that black box. Okay. And, and that one withdrawal will be to have a part you needed or one withdrawal will be something didn't break because you checked it. Those are all the withdrawals you make. You need to keep a, a net positive balance in that black, black box or you sink. You yeah. Know? You put deposits into the black box with preparation and planning. And you Mm. literally think about every contingency on a sailboat, because as I mentioned a minute ago, um, rescue is going to be far away. 
and a 60 foot boat can sink in two or three minutes, the right size hole in it. Uh, so you, you need to stop that from happening. And so just preparation and thinking through every contingency prepares you for, for the trip. When we, my wife and I went sailing, we went uh, down inside our boat, took pictures all around the boat then turned the pictures upside down and said, if we rolled this boat, what would be flying around inside the cabin? And we thought we'd identified everything. We hadn't refrigerator lids, uh, heavy toolboxes, things, batteries that weren't properly secured. They were held down from, you know, moving around sideways, but bouncing a, uh, 8D battery upside down is going to create havoc inside a sailboat. So we we literally spent a month just correcting things in the unlikely event that you were to pitch pole or roll the boat. It happens. You'd be safe inside. Um, if the and boat can, floats, it's a safe place. With, that can happen with a vehicle. You can easily roll it. You're so right. So securing all that stuff. Securing it. And then like a vehicle, where do you secure it? You know, how, how low in the boat are the heavy things? Um, where do you put the chain? How do you, where do you put the batteries? Where do you keep the tools? All of those, you know, extra oil, the water, all of those things uh, affect the balance of a sailboat and dramatically affect it if it's, if it's turned on its head. So thinking about those things, there was, we did our first offshore trip up the coast of Washington and our sailboat has what's called a steering quadrant. The cable comes around the steering wheel, goes around pulleys and goes back around the rudder. And there's a big piece of bronze, about three feet in diameter, that the wire rope runs around and comes back to the pulleys. And when you turn the wheel, it shifts this and this big iron thing turns the rudder shaft. Okay. The pulleys, as they turn, as the, the cable, as it turns a corner, there's bronze pulleys and there's just steel bearings that go through. I, just before our trip, I said, you know, I think I better go check out the steering system on this. And the steel pin, the cotter pin had fallen out. The pin holding the pulley had backed halfway out, was still holding the pulley on, but a quarter inch, the pin had come out, I'd lose my steering. Not something you want to happen offshore wow. while you're sailing. You could lose total control of the boat. So, you know, just the inspection, the preparation, thinking about contingencies, I think all of those are directly transferable into overland travel in a vehicle, on a motorcycle, na name your equipment, just uh, thinking through where you're going, what you might need, mm. and then prioritizing, you know, because you can't take everything. Yeah, it was interesting when you just showed me the little walkthrough with your sprinter today. Uh, I, I immediately noticed that right behind the driver's head was the satellite phone, all of the communication devices. And a lot of times people will have a sat phone tucked into a drawer in the back of the vehicle, or they'll it'll be maybe in the drawer of a sprinter. But if that vehicle was to catch fire, you won't be able to get to the phone. So that to me, when I first saw that, I thought this is somebody who has traveled <laughs> a lot and it, it makes sense with the boat. You've got to be able to grab that stuff in a moment. Absolutely. And, you know, packing your life raft. I mean, what, what are the things you want in your little uh, Pelican case inside that life raft? And so yeah. you've got to spend some time. And there's a lot of people have a lot of experience on this. You know, people have actually spent a lot of time in life rafts. But sure. You need to do the research. You need to look to the experts who've actually encountered these things and and see what saved them, what worked, what didn't, what would they have left home, you know, what were the critical items. And I think you need to go through the same checklist, you know, on the water or on the dirt. Just yeah. Same things apply. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and I, I remember reading parts of Yvonne Chouinard's book, let, I think it was Let My People Surf, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And in, in your time with Patagonia, how did you see that translation come across where they were able to grow a company 
so successfully and have such an emphasis on quality and innovation, but still let their people surf. If there was somebody listening to this podcast with a, with a new business and they're trying to build that kind of a culture, what would be some things that you would recommend to them to think about in how to make that culture exist for them too? No, and how how to preserve it. Because what happens with growth is those cultures die. Um, There's can be successful as a business, but die as a culture. And that's a painful thing to see. And I, I've been blessed to, to have been at two kind of iconic brands, um, Nike, which focused on sport and Patagonia and outdoor gear, which both struggled with that um, yeah. uh, through the growth phase. And both were founded by people who had, had an overriding passion for the, the sports that they made equipment for. And, and Nike was running originally, but it became basketball and tennis and baseball and football and all the cleated sports. Patagonia was climbing and branched out into all sorts of Alpine sports. And I I think kind of the hard way through some, some rough times, both companies learned that um, protecting a culture is like protecting a relationship Mm. takes, takes investment, takes time. It takes commitment. Uh, It takes making sure everyone knows what the, where the guardrails are for the company and, what their value, what the shared values are. And for Yvonne, um, he has maintained his passion for surfing, climbing, fly fishing, traveling. That's what he does. And he's, he is quite literally a billionaire. He gives away a lot of his money to conservation and environmental causes, but that is one big component of the values driven culture that, that he's created and nurtured. Yeah. He's really worked to keep those values in place because you know, it's like you start a company with three or four people, then it's 20, then it's 30. And, oh my God, we've got more sales than we can make product for. And pretty soon you got a hundred. Well, the last 80 people don't know the stories. They don't know the the, the hardships and the, the the travel stories and the adventure stories that the founders knew. You've, you've got to expend some effort to, to keep those elements alive in a culture so that people can, sh- can share the, the things we learn from them. And it takes yeah. effort. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I could, I can see that. And, and it's something that as the overland industry grows, trying to maintain that, those ethics of being responsible travelers and, and being good guests in the countries that we visit and being mindful of our impact, um, both towards the environment and towards the cultures that we interact with being very positive around that. And it was, it's interesting when you read a little bit about Yvonne's history he was a bit of an overlander himself. He ended up doing a, like a Volkswagen van trip down through the, through and a sailing trip through South America, right? He did. He traveled, they left in a Volkswagen bus, or I'm sorry, a Ford van. Ford van, okay. It was in Conoline. They had to, they took a transmission apart on the side of the road in Chile someplace <laughs> and eventually sold it. Uh, but they were headed from California down uh, to climb Saratori in Fitzroy uh, in the tip of South America. And they went down, they bivied in a cage in a cave for a month before they made their assault, but they surfed in the northern part of South America. They climbed and skied in the mid part and then did their famous climb down the tip of South America at the end of it. And it was a six month journey. So yeah, he's, he's traveled all over the world. Um, the only place I went first before him was Fanning Island. I got there on a sailboat to surf before he did. It's the only claim I have. It's the only, only place in the planet that I was first. But yeah, he wow. is a very experienced traveler. Yeah, prolific, right? Yeah. And do you feel that those travels helped him shape his company as well? 
You think that that gave him, it's, it maybe centered him or grounded him a little bit? Without question. No, I, I think the, the values of travel and the way he traveled uh, was sparse. I mean, he took very little gear, lived off the land. When he was, the company was first started, you know, they couldn't afford food when he was climbing in Yosemite. And they literally bought dented cat food. <laughs> they couldn't afford full price cat food. They got dented cans of cat food and ate cat food while they were climbing in, in Yosemite back in the 60s. Incredible. So, you know, I think living that way simply and, and focusing on the experience and not crowding it with extraneous uh, God, uh, challenges and problems and things you have to find solutions for. I think he still lives simply even as a billionaire and he runs a company simply there's, there's no offices. Everyone sits in common areas. Um, he, he spends my, my first week there was comprised of, I sat in the day with him in a blacksmith shop. <laughs> he told me the history of the company is he made a piton, wow. which he made when he first time found the company. And then I sat in a office with him for another two days having him talk to me about the philosophy of the company. And wow. that's what he puts people through. He really wants everyone who works there to understand the, the values that have driven it. And frankly, it made the place so successful, right? That wow. people know that Patagonia walks the talk and it's, it, it's, it takes some work. Yeah. That's a fascinating story that someone at that level of leadership within that size of an organization yeah. would take that amount of time. I don't think most do that. And I think that that's probably why those cultures get lost or they get reinterpreted yeah. as new people come on board. And now he's got people helping him. You know, that, I think, you know, the company's tripled in size or doubled since I was there, but that just that exercise of introducing people to the culture so that when reference is made in a catalog or one makes reference to a story about something that happened, there, you know, there aren't these glazed eyes. People don't know what that story is about. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a rich history with Doug Tompkins and, and Chris and, all the people, Rick Ridgeway, that are really a part of the legacy of the company and have all played an important role in it. And he makes people familiar with their stories as well. And one of the things that I, I've taken away from a lot of your stories, Chris, is it looks like that you have had these chapters in your life where you get uh, very focused on uh, a business opportunity or maybe something that you want to create. Uh, you focus on that and you it seems like you understand the timing when it you need to be done with it or move on from it. And then you go and you play. I mean, you go travel the world by a sailboat or you go uh, help the listener, maybe give some encouragement or some understanding around how do you do that? How do you accomplish that in your life where you can, you can have these sprints as a business person and then follow it up with a day that you leave and you go off on your sailboat? Yeah, I, I think initially that was simply attention deficit disorder for me. I get, <laughs> get bored easily and I like to play. And so I always wanted to do something new. But I think, I think as I got older and, you know, kind of became more senior in some of the positions I had in companies, it just became an element in our planning. You know, when we went sailing, um, that's not an activity that two people on a sailboat can do when they're 80 years old or sure. 70 years old. We wanted to do it while we're young enough to physically be able to do it. And we said, we can take time out. We'll come back and we'll look for something else to do and just made the decision. You know, there's a, a little bit of stepping off the edge when you leave that good job to right. go do something. Um, I wouldn't trade the experiences I've had for anything in the world. And, you know, had I stayed in some of these companies, would I have been more senior and, 
you know, had more responsibility, probably, you know, you've got to make a, a, a trade in your life about, you know, what sort of balance do you want? If you want to be the CEO of a fortune 500 company, or would you be happy being a VP of marketing and then taking three years off to go sailing? Right. It was the latter for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you know, everything's a trade. And um, I think if, if you plan well, it's a, it's a, for me, it's been a really easy trade to make. Yeah. One of the things that's been so interesting for me in having these conversations for the podcast and the people that I've met in recent years in my life, it seems that across the board, there is this recognition that uh, the one true piece of wealth that we have is time. And, and it seems like that we spend time with recklessness. It seems like that we're always convinced that we have more time. So we're, we're very frugal with money even, yeah. or we want to try to accumulate as much money as we can, but then we'll give away time like it doesn't have any value. And it's really the only thing, I mean, from Bill Gates to me, there's, Bill doesn't have any more time than I do in a day. He can't, even being a billionaire, he can't buy more time than 24 hours. Right. So it's, it's very finite. And it seems like that the more that I consider it, the more that I think about it, the more that I recognize that wealth for me is starting to look like how much time can I spend enjoying the world? Like it really comes down to time. Do I have enough money to take off for months or years at a time. It's about setting priorities and and what's the most important thing to you. And, you know, I lost, you know, kids in my life who didn't get to grow up and, and, you know, the losing an only child, I think reset all my value points Mm. about time being the one asset uh, that we have. That's the only thing we have even a slight bit of control over. Sure. And you start making decisions based on that. You know, I, 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 when we did the, uh, the video for the, the South America trip, right. Um, at some point someone was asking me, so why in the world are you doing this trip? You know, you're, you're way over your head. <laughs> this is, this is way beyond what a sane person would do with the writing abilities that I possess. And I, 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 I really meant it when I said that, you know, I'm not going to be laying on my deathbed wishing that I had worked more days. Yeah. That's not going to be, I know for a fact, that's not what I'm going to be thinking about but I don't want to be laying there regretting the things that I would have liked to have really done and didn't simply because I got my priorities wrong. And I, I think it's, it's about making decisions of of what your priorities are. And once you do that, the rest is easy. You know, that's the decisions. Yeah. No brainers. Yeah. It seems like regret is the most difficult pill to swallow (laughs) because you can't, it's like, it's the things you can't undo or you can't fix because it's already, the ship has sailed, right? So funny things. Okay. You can make more money, but like you said, time is, you you, you just don't create more for yourself. Well, and that brings me to the trip that we did to to South America. So this was Expedition 65. It was put together by a mutual friend of Chris and mine, uh, Jim Hyde from Rawhide. And uh, they they conduct uh, premium BMW motorad training. So if you're a big bike rider, or even if you're not, and you'd like to see how it is to learn how to ride a big bike, uh, they do a great job of training. It's just, uh, they we don't have any affiliation with them. This is just a personal recommendation based upon my the learnings that I've had with Jim and his team. But Jim pulled together a small group of people. I think there was maybe 18 of us total. Uh, I think we started with 13. 13. Okay. Because they had a driver. We had some other people, but I think 13 riders. Yeah. So it was a little bit bigger than you'd normally have in a group of buddies. But um, by the end of it, we all 
were a group of buddies, but uh, it was it was such a, a an eclectic group of folks. And we we left Cartagena, Colombia, and the intention was for the group to go all the way to Ushuaia. And and there wasn't a lot of folks that actually made it to the end, not because they got sick or injured, but I think the the timing. They ran out of time, maybe, right? Well, no, two people, Chris White and Bill Whitaker, had to leave the group early to make a run for Ushuaia because okay, they didn't want to miss it. Got it. So they their trip was cut short uh, while we were in, exploring some of the mountain regions of southern Chile. But everybody made it other than the, the one injury we had. Everyone made it to Ushuaia. Yeah. But I think 12 riders made it down there at different paces, but. And that was that the longest trip you've ever done on a motorcycle? Uh, without question. No, that was 11,300 and some miles in two, about two and a half months. And what did you take away? I mean, you've having traveled in sailboats and Tacomas and expedition vehicles. What did you learn traveling on the motorcycle? What was your big takeaway from the bike? Oh my gosh. Um, well, the takeaway from the bike was a 1200 CC bike is capable of riding a ride like that, you know, as you know, a lot of it off-road and some, some, some pretty severe terrain. Yeah. We were really off-road. Yeah. If you train, uh, I, I'd ridden motorcycles my entire life. I rode bikes from the time I was 12, 13 years old and I had never been trained on how to ride a 560 pound bike <laughs> in the dirt. And I, sure. I did a couple courses with Jim. I learned more in three days and I'm, I'm not affiliated either. I'm just a happy former customer. Right. Uh, but for that training, I would not have been able to successfully do this ride. Um, yeah. Some of that stuff we did in Ecuador was pretty technical. That oh was challenging. My goodness. It was, yeah. you know, and there, there were, we, we had the, uh, uh, Colin Evans, Colin became a good friend and along with everybody else, but I, uh, Colin lives in Oregon. So I see him more, but we, we had the, the DFU, um, number for all these elements we're on. Don't up. Yeah. And the death road, which is supposed to be the ultimate DFU road. That was like a six or a seven. Right. We're on roads that put that thing to shame. I mean, literally you remember there were six, seven foot wide, rocky off camber, totally 10 degree downhill and thousand foot drop-offs. I, I, I would be nervous walking on some of those roads. <laughs> yeah. They were intense. And we were taking they, they were, big bikes. We were taking big, big bikes. bikes and just don't look. I mean, the, the one, the lesson don't look where you don't want to go. And I will tell you <laughs> how many times that went through my head. Don't look where you don't want to go. Don't look where you don't want to go. <laughs> Target fixation. You, really right? don't, you don't want to go there. <laughs> well, and I, I think the, it was the last night that I was with the group. We were way up in the mountains in Peru uh, I think we were maybe 14,000 yeah, feet yeah. and that was one of the coldest nights I've had camping in my life. I was, I had all the gear I needed on the bike. And and I think that that's one of the things that I love about the motorcycle is it reminds us of how simple life can be if we allow it to yep. be. Uh, so I, I traveled for months off of that motorcycle with everything, you know, just a few items. If you think about it, it would all fit in the passenger seat of a car, yep. everything that I had. Yep. And, but I was cold that night and, uh, that was such a neat spot. It was beautiful by that lake and everything stunning. Right. And it was like a gold mine or something it was. nearby, wasn't it? Yeah. The, it was, you know, I think the other big takeaway for me was, you know, follow as closely as you can to writers that are better than you and watch them. I mean, yeah. just pay attention. And, you know, the, the few times I could catch up to you watching you was one of the people <laughs> I, I watched in this, you know, but Jason and Chris White and yeah, good writers. You know, some of the writers on, 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 
this trip were extraordinary, not yeah. just good, you know, Tiberio. Yeah, really th- th- good. These guys are world-class and there's nothing better. If you can, can finagle your way into a group of writers that much better than you are, just pay attention to what they're doing and, and don't be shy about asking. And, yeah. uh, and I learned a ton just from the people on the ride. It's just really, really good. There's so much that we can take away from m- keeping that mindset of being a student, right. Of always, of always learning. And I learned so much on that trip from all of you that I was, that I was with and, and the importance of the importance of training, especially on something very, I mean, motorcycles fall over and that's what I think people get away with a lot of stuff in four wheel drives (laughs) because they don't typically fall over. Right. (laughs) But you can't fake it on a motorcycle. You either, you either get the skills and you learn how to ride one or you don't, or they fall over. So no, and there were, there were sections we were 15,000 plus feet in Bolivia. And we had about 20 miles of, there really wasn't a road. There were tracks through two mile wide sand for 20 miles. And I'm not, I'm not a lover of sand and I was struggling. I went down, I, you know, 20 times if I went down once. Sure. And, um, uh, Evan Firstman wrote, finally wrote up to me, as I was laying under my motorcycle saying, someone just shoot me at that altitude, picking your bike up. Oh man, I was smoked. I was so toast. Yeah. And Evan kind of shuffles up. Hey, Chris, how many many pounds of air you got in your tires? I said, I'm, I'm air down. I'm down to like 21 pounds. He said, that's 10 pounds too many. That's right. He literally took my tires down to 12, 11, 12 pounds. I rode right out of there. You know, it was just little things like that. I said, well, it won't stay on the rim. He said, that's the least of your problem, bro. <laughs> he's right. <laughs> yeah, he's right. Yeah. I'm not going to hit a rock, not in that stuff. Right. And I was able to totally ride out. You know, the, the lesson of the day that's, you know, saved the rest of that week for me was simply, you know, when you get a really extreme conditions, you got to make extreme adjustments. And I just, those people knew that stuff. I didn't. It was really, it was fabulous. Yeah. And I think one, for me, one of the other lessons that I really took away from that trip is the importance of not riding at night. It doesn't mean that that doesn't happen on occasion where you have a flat and you got to fix it, or you have a, you know, a GI issue because of a bad taco and you, you know, you end up coming into camp or into a hotel late at night. But uh, that was definitely a lesson from that trip. There was just too many nights that we came in late and there were people that were very tired limited visibility at night in the developing countries rain. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, you know, I, I things happen, right? They so do. Tires get flat. You get lost. Uh, you have you know, some mechanical problem, but we rode too many nights that we could have planned around. They I, were the result of bad planning, not unforeseen events. And I, yep. I think particularly in, in literally third world countries like that, too many variables. Yes. You just, it doesn't matter how good a rider you are. Mm-hmm. Um, those things happen. And I think I, I finally got to the point. I said, when the sun goes down, Chris goes down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm camping. Yeah. So you guys can go on. I'll catch you tomorrow. And, right. Uh, there, I was not the Lone Ranger. This just wasn't me. There is, you know, a split. Some people just have a higher risk tolerance. Sure. You know, and that's uh, my risk tolerance was unforeseen consequences. Riding a night, don't go there. Yeah. One of the the closest I like in my memory, one of the closest I went to, to really having a bad accident was on that trip. And it was at night and, uh, uh, I was following behind a car and, you know, the car passes over this manhole, what I thought was a manhole cover, but there was no cover there. 
And of course the front end of the bike went, and I just had a split second to try to add some throttle to, to loft the front end a little bit, which maybe helped, but I ended up with a, you know, a high speed, you know, pinch flat lost air immediately. And I was lucky that I didn't go down from the impact itself because the whole back of the bike came up and, and then, you know, and of course the rear barely made it out of the hole. And, and then I ended up with a flat on the side of the road with really not enough room to pull out. I was really right on the side of the road, as you guys remember. And, and, and that was just, for me, it was definitely a, a lesson of if it had been the daytime, I would have seen it. Yeah, easily seen the yeah. shadow and how the light was casting into the hole and known that that wasn't a man cover manhole cover. And yeah, definitely those that are listening. If you can at all avoid riding or driving at night, it, it you'll hear it time and time again, but it's actually one of those great truths. I it's, think it's real. It's real. Yeah. And you know, the hazards, uh, you know, the people down there tie their cattle and horses up on 30 foot long ropes by the side of the road. That's where the grass is growing. And the horse walks across the road and right about throat level is a piece of rope coming at, you know, we, I ducked under 10 of those riding at night and had they been three inches lower right off the bike. I mean, you know, you just, you don't see them. And in the daylight, you can see the animal, you see the rope. It's just, it's a different thing. Uh, the, the moderate risks become severe in the dark and you just, you got to accept that. Yeah. You really got to look at it like Russian roulette. How many bullets do you want to put in the cylinder? Right. <laughs> and if you, and if, and if it's, you know, one out of every 30 days that you have to ride at night, then it's your risks are pretty low. How many but times you, you want to spin it? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And on that trip, uh, actually, after I had left the group, I started listening to a book on tape called shoe dog. Uh, and it was based upon your recommendation. And that right. was uh, Phil Knight's book about starting and, and running and growing uh, the Nike organization. How was that experience working oh, for, I, for Nike? It, I think more than anything else, it's the job that changed my life. You know, I was there longer than any place else I worked. Uh, I was, went to schools, trained as an attorney. Right before I was at Nike, I was actually a district attorney. I was elected when I was 30 years old. I had no business doing that. <laughs> Near the end of the term, Nike recruited me to be a lawyer and to go back to Washington, D.C. and to carry on the, the fight that had been happening with U.S. Customs. And Shoe Dog ends the book with the battles going on with this particular customs agent that is now fighting with the now publicly traded small company, Nike. So I was the next attorney in line to go back and do battle with U.S. Customs. So I was hired as an attorney and went back to D.C. for a couple of years and uh, tried a big case before the International Trade Commission and got a really big settlement, a a duty claim settlement out of Customs and brought the check back to to Knight. And he said, "Okay, you're coming back to Beaverton and you're going to be in charge of investor relations and PR. (laughs) I'm a lawyer. What do I know about investor relations PR? Nothing. Um, I don't think anyone in any job had ever done their job before at Nike at that time. That was just the culture. It was a bunch of accountants and lawyers who were uh, track and field guys who love sports, who were competitive as hell, wanted to make better products and started this company. And then the time I joined the company, it was about $400 million. You know, now they're pushing 40 billion. Insane. They grew from first two years I was there. They grew from 400 million to 800 million in one year from 800 million to 1.6 billion and then had their first big stumble. You know, their stock lost half, uh, half its value. The sales went backwards. 
Nike almost got wiped out in the mid eighties. And I had a ringside seat uh, in my role as investor relations and PR to kind of, how does it, how does a young hot brand like this get their mojo back? And yeah. it was the education of my life. I got the, the free MBA, if not PhD and how does a startup get back on track? And I, what I learned watching them get themselves out of that hole literally shaped my professional life from then on. What, what were some of those key takeaways? What were those, some of those big learning events that you saw? How did they get their mojo back? What were some yeah, of the, meat well, and the main things they did? Recognizing how they'd screwed up was yeah. the main thing. You know, they, they were publicly traded. They had been doubling their sales and earnings every year for 10 years. Do the math. Yeah. They started a hundred thousand. I mean, you get to a billion really fast. Well, the, the, the shareholder expectation then becomes you got to double your sales every year. Well, that's not sustainable. Right. Right. But they were trying to do it and they did some stupid. Shit. They started yeah. making uh, moon boots for Michael Jackson. They started making fashion shoes. They, their arrogance made them believe that they could put a swish on it. They could sell it. Mm. And they were wrong. You know, their the franchise for that brand, their customer was an athlete. And when Nike started making moon boots and, and fashion shoes and leather shoes, people left them like the plague and they recognized they'd gone off track. They said, athletes got us to where we are. We are a sports and fitness company. We're not going to do this other crap. Let's figure out how we kind of recommit to sports and fitness and the three things they did, Just Do It was born. Great slogan. Michael Jordan was signed <laughs> and, and cross-training as a category was created. And they haven't looked back. You know, they were at 800 million when that fiasco happened. I wrote the annual report that year. That was an experience. Uh, they're now $40 billion brand. And every 18 months, two years, Nike has an offsite with a senior 100 people. and they literally recommit to the values that got to the company where they are. You know, they look back and say, what's happened this year? What do we have to do differently? What is the basis of our success? How do we get to where we are? What is the franchise we have? Why are people loyal to us? Why do we have a franchise with our customer? Let's make sure we never lose that. And they've done it ever since. And that process of kind of, I call it renewing your vows. Yeah. You know, it's like, a marriage that lasts 40 years, you know, good brands stick around because the people that run the place renew their commitment to the underlying values that kind of grew them to where they are. Watching Nike do that kind of, you know, swallow the hard pills of, of recognizing the mistakes, fire a lot of people, you know, kind of they had 50 million pairs of shoes they had to get rid of at cost. You, know, you can imagine what that does to your bottom line. Sure. They bit the bullet for about three years and they've been a leader in the industry since. It was an amazing, amazing thing to watch. Yeah. I, I remember for me that just do it slogan was, it was definitely an impact on me. It, it, you know, as a young, as a young person, I was a triathlete at the time and I wanted to just do it. It, it, it definitely resonated with me. So that was, it, it worked on me as a customer. It's a, it's a, 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 a war cry for a company, but it's also a, a personal one of motivation. You know, yeah. when, you, when you're training and you don't feel like doing it anymore, you need to, you know, you need to do that extra lap. You need to do the extra 10 miles on the bike. You need to run the extra four. You do it because you, you, you know, you're committed to it. And I, it's, it's worked, you know, in the eighties and it's still working in going into the 2020s. 
And, and after you left Nike, did you immediately go back to, to work or did you get a chance to do some adventuring after that stint? No, that was, well, that, that's another funny story because I, we had wanted to go sailing. We had bought a, a purchased a sailboat. We had paid for it. We were living on it. We came back. We had been living in Hong Kong for four years, came back and retired and took off for Alaska on the sailboat. And while in Alaska, I was contacted by Yvonne Chouinard. <laughs> who said, Hey, Chris, I hear you left Nike. We're having some problems down here. We'd love to have you come down run product and marketing. Would you be willing to come out of retirement? Well, we had just set off on our five-year dream. And Christine and I spent a, a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, a, a lot of Pinot was consumed thinking that, <laughs> thinking that one through on the sailboats sailing back through British Columbia. Decided to do it. It was, you know, Patagonia was a brand that I'd admired uh, Chenard was a man I'd admired. It was the business to me that demonstrated that you can do well in business by doing good yeah. in the world. And so I came back, put, you know, took the boat down to sail the boat down to Ventura worked for Patagonia for a few years. And then when I was done there and kind of gotten done what I wanted to do, we continued our sailing, sailing adventures out of Ventura. And, and how long did you work for Patagonia? Uh, about four years, three okay. and a half years. Okay. Yeah. And it was, you know, they, they had gone through exactly what Nike did. You know, Yvonne came to realize that, you know, at 300 million, if it was at 400 million, he could give away another 30 million bucks to conservation. So they started doing stupid stuff Yeah, and consumers coined the phrase Patagucci because Patagonia was making a lot of expensive fashion stuff. They lost their franchise with their core customer. People thought they weren't committed to outdoor sports and, mm -hmm. Patagonia had to go through a, a period of recommitment. And I, I helped, helped lead that process. They had all the answers. I mean, they knew what they were doing wrong. They just had to kind of swallow it and get back on the right track. It was, it was fun to watch. They've, they haven't made that mistake again. It's really, it's, it's, it's a sign it, of a great company. Yeah. It's fascinating to see how nimble a company that size can be if they really commit to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's privately owned. Mm. You know, they don't have shareholders. You know, sure. Yvonne is, and offered a lot of money by private equity companies. And by, I actually orchestrated a conversation between Phil Knight and Yvonne Chouinard about a purchase. <laughs> Yvonne just went, I, I can't go there. I can't turn my brand over to somebody else. So it's still a family owned business. That's at, fascinating. At a billion dollars. Cause he knows or he believes that, that only he can, can kind of protect that what he's built. Yeah. He's probably right. He or a family member. Yeah. And that's the difficulty. How do, how do you maintain that legacy? Yeah. Well, you have to be willing to say, I'm at a billion dollars right now. I've made some mistakes. I'm perfectly happy taking this company backwards to 600 million and do the right thing and then rebuild again. Cause yeah. I don't have any shareholders to moan and groan. Right. I own this, this bad boy and I'm going to do what I want. And he's, you know, he's made some mistakes, but you know, 99% of the time he's, he's done the right thing afterwards. It's, it's been fun to watch. No, that's a real model. That's impressive. And, and it, it certainly that, that realization that things need to evolve and change. I mean, you've, you have owned a, a bunch of different vehicles. You, you when we <laughs> yeah. first, when we first met, you were, you were building a Toyota Tacoma and, and yeah. I think yours took a similar path to mine where it got very he heavy, very heavy and a little, a little overbuilt like mine was. I, I can certainly recognize that in, in my first Tacoma project. And then you had a Tundra next. Is that right? Right. Right. Yeah. And I, 
I, I think I modeled mine a lot of the things you did. But, yeah. You know, sorry it, about that. It was well, <laughs> it was it was bomber, but it was you know it was getting eleven miles of the gallon. Yeah. And I was I was pushing a lot of steel down the road. Yeah. And you know I I built the Tundra. I, I thought you know weight's going to be a factor here, even though things already big and heavy, right? But when you add three thousand pounds and you're way over GVW and you got to do the suspension just to carry the weight, you go something something's wrong with this picture. And so it was a little different philosophy approaching the build. I want to go a little lighter. What do I really need? And can I use materials that are lighter? I mean, mm-hmm. do I really need steel skid plates, you know, I mean, yeah. little things, you know, sure. you start thinking about how much water do I have to take and how much fuel? I mean, how many times did I actually run out of gas that I needed to, to custom build a 35 gallon gas tank? I mean, right. little things like that. And, um, Turned out differently, you know, and, and, but like you and I were talking before, all these things are trade-offs. There's no right answer here. Sure. How are you going to use compromise. it? Where are you going to go? What is your style of overlanding? Um, you know, how, what are the conditions going to be in? Are you going to be in when you're using it? Um, how close is help? All, yeah. the, all those things you think about. And right now it looks like you gave me a little tour of your, of your sprinter. Tell me about your current overland vehicle. You know, I, I started with the, the base is a, a, a short, low-top, uh, four-wheel drive sprinter that Sportsmobile built out for me. I had owned a E350 van when they were back in God, the early 2000s of theirs. I liked their build. They were willing to work with me on customizing it the way I wanted because I having time spent time on a sailboat, I had a way I like to use small space, both my living space and my storage space. So they were totally open to accommodating that. So... I thought about what I wanted to take with me, what I was going to put it in. Um, I had experimented with the first sportsmobile and the Tacoma and with the Tundra. I knew what I wanted and needed to take. So I built the van around how I wanted to live and what I wanted to take. So, um, you know, agile has done all my suspension upgrades and looks great. They're doing, they're doing really good stuff. And I've, you know, we spent two and a half months in Alaska in it. We've been, we spent two winters in Baja in it. Now we've gotten ourselves into things. I, I, that I would not have expected a, you know, that construction vehicle to be able to handle. And it was absolutely fine. It is, you know, with the proper modifications, it's a, it's a very worthy off-road vehicle. You just have to know how big it is and how long the wheelbase is. And sure. <laughs> where the low spots are. Yeah. You know, it's just, you gotta be careful. Yeah. Be a little gentle with it. One of the things I noticed when I looked inside your van that I really liked, you have a, you have a garage configuration in the back that looks like it can also be a small bed. Um, and that gives you a ton of storage at the rear. Right. But then it looks like you went with just a two person dinette and that looked really smart Yeah, where you, you can still sit and work and enjoy a meal, but you're not taking a bunch of extra space with a four person dinette. I thought that was really smart. Yeah. We made the, the driver's seat and the passenger seat swing around. So if people are ever in the van with us, sure. can seat four people, but we're just not going to have for us, you know, again, back to our use, we're not going to have more than the two of us eating in it. And, you know, it actually drops down into a little single bed there. Never used it that way. Sure. Uh, the table swings out of the way and the seats are actually, um, this is the only little argument I had with Sportsmobile. You know, from sailing, you can't have too much water and you can't have too much solar panels. Sure. So solar panels. So we got 40 gallons of water and it sits under the the two seats. So the, the seats were dimensions were determined by 20 gallons of water. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. It's so a, it's a perfect place for one person to sit. If you make the tank right. And they're 
with them both being water tanks, then it equalizes the weight a little bit left to right as well. And they're just forward of the rear wheels. So it's kind of in the center. So it helps with As that. are the batteries underneath. So we sure. put all the heavy stuff in the middle and low. Yeah, it looks it looks great. I'll try to include a an image of the van in the show notes for everybody to see it. it it's a really smartly designed vehicle that it looks like it's got everything you need. And, you know, your motorcycle travels have influenced that no doubt as well. But so a couple of questions for you that come to mind, something that I like to ask those that are on the podcast, but uh, what would you say are the top one, two, three books in your life that you, you have, re- that has really influenced you where you'd recommend someone to read or the gift, the books that you like to gift to others? What are some of your favorite oh, books that you like to read? You know, I, uh, as a kid, I, I went to 13 elementary schools all over the country. So I, I kind of started adventuring in elementary school. Yeah. Being the new kid, 13 years out of 13 schools out of six years, you learn to adventure. But I, yeah. but I, but I traveled a lot. And when I, I graduated from high school when I was just 16. So I went to Europe. I traveled around Europe and with my brother, who was just 15, the two of us loose in Europe for three months. Oh, that's perfect. It was fabulous. Oh, it was Europe amazing. on $5 a day. You could do it back then. Wow. Uh, but one of the places we went, we went to Germany was to Dachau. Okay. And read Viktor Frankl's book, The Man's Search for Meaning. And I think I have reread that book probably four times. Okay. Uh, about um, man's struggle to find meaning in, in the worst of situations and importance or a relationship and responsibilities to one another mm. that, that I think shaped a lot of my thinking about the role of government, about how you treat people in an, in a company that you run um, just all of your interactions. It, mm. it shaped it a lot. Um, I think one of my favorite outdoor books is the Emerald mile. I, I just think it's history, it's geology, it's conservation, it's adventure, it's river running all, all rolled into the one book. It's just fabulous. And, um, Edward Abbey desert solitaire. Yeah. That's it, a great it, one. I think it was fueled my love of the desert. I've been living in the desert when the high desert here in Oregon, ever since I read that book with the law school in the desert moved here. That's where I go to vacation and play. It's kind of my, it's my happy place. So oh, those are great suggestions yeah, too. And if you were, if someone that was getting new into travel came up to you and they asked you, uh, what advice do you have? Like, what would be your first piece of advice that you would give someone that wanted to go travel the world? That the most fun I've ever had is when I planned to get outside my comfort zone, to to have a little bit of anxiety yeah. about what was in store for me, a little bit of anxiety about are my plans all together, anxiety about the culture, uh, anxiety about sometimes the risk or the danger. I've grown the most, I've learned the most, I've had the most fun when mm. not what I've gone and done something that was kind of easy and planned and uh, totally predictable, but when it was more unpredictable. Stretched um, you a little bit. Stretched me a little bit. And, and you don't, you don't have to stretch with physical danger. I mean, there's, there's, there's cultural things. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I mentioned I, I worked in, in Hong Kong for uh, a long time for Nike. I was supposed to go to Europe and, and run the marketing and product development for the European headquarters. At the last minute, they said, no, the growth area is Hong Kong. Go there. And I went, oh man, Asia, that's kind of weird. I'd never been to Asia. That really uncomfortable. I think it was that the lack of feeling your complete equilibrium that made 
the three, four years I spent in Asia is so much fun. Wow. You know, you're in a different place. And I, I think I probably learned more and experienced more and had more fun being off balance a little bit on that. I mean, the latitude 65. I mean, I, I was way out over my skis. I mean, yeah. my, I had never ridden anything close to that. And, um, there were times when I wondered what the, what the hell I was doing yeah. on that trip, but in retrospect and, and 95% of the time, it was kind of just taking the chance to go a little beyond what you think your capabilities are. It doesn't mean don't plan. doesn't mean don't be careful. doesn't mean don't, you know, try to imagine what can happen, but just accept that that level of discomfort is what brings the fun to it. Yeah. And it's what helps us grow. I think even if you think about exercise, it requires that, stretching of ourselves, that soreness that comes from pushing yeah. a little bit more weight today than you did yesterday that helps make us stronger. And I, and I think the same thing applies in, in most of life, yeah. certainly with travel. I, and, and it becomes a bit addicting in a way because you, oh, yeah. you recognize that, wow, what's, what's that other culture like? And then what's that one like? And, and uh, yeah, it's certainly been transformative. Well, and I just find myself, Oh, have I not had an experience like that? I'm just, I start getting fidgety. I, Christine, she's tired of hearing me say it. I need an adventure. <laughs> yeah. I need, we need to plan something. Yeah. We need to do something. And it could be a short thing. I was just down in Yosemite with a buddy um, who has climbed all of his life. And I, you know, I do one or two pitch routes, you know, here and there, bolted stuff, got to Smith Rocks, pretty lightweight climbing. And he said, we're going to Yosemite. We're going to do a big wall. Uh, we're, we're going to do Royal arches, 17 pitches, 14 hours. I said, David, I can, there's no, there's no friggin' way. And he said, hey, we're going to get a guide. We're going to get a Yosemite guide. We're going to go down there and do this. And so six o'clock in the morning, we're in the, in the lodge. Now it's called the Iwani again. Thank God. Um, guide comes up to us. We're the only ones there. We're standing around in our harnesses and our climbing gear. And he looks around and looks at us, looks around, looks at us and <laughs> comes up to us and says, are you Chris and David? David, by the way, is, 77 years old. He says, how old are you guys? <laughs> he said, have you ever done anything like this? David said, oh yeah, I've climbed this route three or four times. I said, I haven't. He said, uh, you'll be fine. You could see this poor guy is thinking, <laughs> oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? But 14 hours, 17 pitches later, we made it. I had no skin on my hands, my feet, my elbows, and my knees. It was one of those things about halfway through. I just, you know, it's a, I'm just going, do it. I'm going to finish this. <laughs> I've never been in so much pain. There was, it was just one exciting moment after another on that. But that's fascinating. At the moment, I regretted it. But looking back, I would have missed that for the world. It's just one of those things, right? Oh, that is so cool. Well, Chris, thank you so much for the time today. You, you've always been an inspiration and you've always been so, so gracious with your time. Chris has helped me with Overland Journal through the years with advice. And I've learned so much from you, Chris. Thank you so much for, for the time uh, on the podcast today. And maybe we'll get you on uh, at some other cool location in the world. And we'll talk <laughs> a little bit more about adventure in your travels, but I, I'm really grateful for your time this today. This is a total pleasure. And you know, you, you are personally responsible for me being involved in most of this overlanding stuff, but it is the journal. It is the vehicles you built. It is the time I spent at the uh, expo, yeah. all those things. You've, you, you've, you've been uh, a, a inspiration and a teacher for me in this. So thank you. It's uh, a yeah, publication's so, great. It is, I've learned so much from what I consider one of the 
best publications on the planet. So thank you for the work you do there. It's fabulous. Well, I'm so grateful for the team. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any of yeah. it without a bunch of people that are much smarter than me behind the, <laughs> behind the helm. So thank you for, again, for the time today, Chris. And, and, uh, it was nice to see you. Great to see you. All right. Enjoy you. that earth cruiser. Yeah, you got it. Thanks. <laughs>